0: And welcome to the Plan a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Roster. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture.
0: The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planning and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits.
1: So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
0: This podcast is being recorded on May thirteenth, two 2022. Cliff Duray is a forester with the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement, or the OSMRE. Cliff is working with the Appalachian Regional Restoration Initiative, the ARRI. This program restores all surface mine sites throughout Appalachia by planting native seedlings and establishing wildlife habitat. This reforestation program was started in 2004, and it has evolved into a highly successful program with good seedling survivability, and growth. The ARRI program partners with private landowners, federal and state agencies, nonprofits, academia, and corporations to restore old mine sites back to the native forests across Appalachia. Cliff graduated from Louisiana Tech University in 1980 with a BS in forest management, and he's a member of the Society of American Foresters. His professional background includes working as a procurement forester for 11 years in the industrial sector, then he worked as a consulting forester for 25 years, and in 2016, he began working as a federal forester in Kentucky. Cliff is a proud military veteran who served for 36 years and completed four combat tours. He's a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel with experience as an engineer and military intelligence officer. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Cliff. We're delighted that you can join us today.
2: Well, thank you. Appreciate you inviting. Me.
0: So, we always like to ask our guests about how they wound up in the profession that they did and you have a really amazing background—not only a military background, but a forestry background. So, give us a little bit of your history.
2: Well, what guided me to being in forestry? Uh, I was in the Boy Scouts, and I took forestry merit badge, and that stuck. That rang a bell with me. And I also it was very fortunate that my dad and my uncle and my grandfather—they all liked trees. My grandfather had a small farm in uh, Texas, and my uncle had a small farm in southwest Mississippi. Well, a large farm, but it was cattle and timber. And so I would go up there to visit my uncle and go hunting and fishing a lot. Uh, It wasn't that far from from Baton Rouge, where I grew up. You know, I, I spent many an hour walking with my uncle and by myself through the woods, and I thought, man, this is neat. Of course, I, my uncle would take me to on log jobs when I was a little bitty fella. And I thought, oh, wow, here we go. This is, I want to drive those big tractors and I want to drive those big trucks and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, over the time I, when I was in high school and then when I started forestry school at Louisiana Tech, I was in contact and had opportunities to spend time with the Forestry Commission, both in Louisiana and Mississippi. And I learned a lot from those professionals. And so that, you know, that kind of kept me on course at forestry school. Of course, I kind of fell off the wagon a little bit. And um, so I decided I might need to to, uh, go into the military. So I joined the Marine Corps and um, spent three years in the Corps as an infantryman in the reserves. And then I had the opportunity to join the Louisiana National Guard and, and I joined the Corps of Engineers. And you mentioned a background, but forestry and the Corps of Engineers fit just hand in glove with the equipment aspect. And so I did three years in the Marine Corps and three years in the Army, both active and reserve. And 33 years in the Army was in the Corps of Engineers. Needless to say, my commanders used me a lot in my career because, you know, I I came from the logging woods. And so I knew how to use equipment. I knew how to build dirt roads, gravel roads, which in the Corps of Engineers, that, that's field expedient. That's all you need. So I got to spend a lot of time in a lot of interesting places pushing roads and river crossings, creek crossings, that kind of stuff around the world.
1: When your military career ended, Cliff, is that when you went into the uh, private sector?
2: Well, how actually, I worked for the timber company for 11 years, and then I got the itch to go out on my own as a consulting forester So I was a self-employed forester for 25 years. So when I got off active duty after my last combat tour, I just went right back to um, forestry. So I never, actually, I never left it. And in fact, when I was deployed in the desert, I would always be talking to people about forestry. They'd be asking me questions, which helped my mind think a different channel than Army and combat and being deployed, so that kind of helped me keep stable and keep my keep my compass straight, so to speak. But uh, right, but yeah, when I was deployed, I, of course, I did a lot of things as an engineer officer and an intel officer in Iraq and Afghanistan. I got I got to do a lot of what they call it counter IED, which is looking for roadside bombs. And uh, right. and the hunting was good. We found a lot of them. And uh, luckily, I came home pretty much unscathed. And then when I came back and got off active duty, well, then I just went right back into forestry.
1: And what kind of consulting does an independent forester do, just for our listeners?
2: Uh, Primarily, you work for private landowners. And I do timber appraisals, timber sales, tree planting, land management. And long story short, when I left the timber company and started as a consulting forester my first client if you will were three coal companies in north alabama because coal is big in the top third or north part of alabama and these companies hired me to uh, plant trees or establish vegetation because we've got these mine inspectors and they're just eating us up and i thought oh my goodness i I come from, I'm coming from the logging woods and I didn't know anything about mine land restoration. So I had to learn quick and the learning curve was straight up. But thank goodness the Alabama Forestry Commission and Auburn University helped me out a lot. They saved my bacon, so to speak, and they taught me a lot. So in so since 1991, I've been doing mine land reforestation and learning something every day. And the science and the research is fascinating because it has improved so much, and that's and it that, and it speaks when you're planting trees on these mine sites because the survivability and the growth is just phenomenal. In fact, we're getting 85 and 90 percent survivability wow. on mine lands that, for years, people just wrote them off as as barren, austere, never to be used, productive. You know, it's just gonna it's just gonna be a moonscape and just an eyesore. Right, and just a home for a, a jungle of junk, you know, like autumn olive and kudzu and mimosa and and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, they're invasive species, and when they don't have any competition, they thrive. So now our job is to go back in these old mine sites and clear that off, and and use big ripper shanks on the or ripper plows on the back of that dozer, which is. What we're doing is actually farming kind of on steroids. And so we use that 36-inch ripper shank plow behind the dozer and we cross-rip it just like you would a, a field before you plant a crop. Only we're planting trees. And you know, all that invasive grass and stuff. I just use that dozer to till it in and it decomposes, and you're starting a you're starting a new soil layer with that.
0: So you have green man- manure in, a, in a sense. Yes, ma'am. That is really amazing, and how the two professions fit together. So, like you said, hand and glove. Um, they do. You set yourself up really well when you started in the scouts.
2: <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't plan it. It was somebody higher than me was was guiding me. Thank goodness. There you go.
0: There you go. And and such a needed activity for the beautification and the stability of our lands once coal mining is done in that area, you know, Mm -hmm. stabilizing that area is critical so that local streams and waterways aren't, you know, inundated with debris.
2: That's correct. You know, when you plant trees and you look across the spectrum, wildlife habitat, we're building a new soil layer, we're protecting uh, soil erosion or point source pollution downstream. You're improving water quality because as you build that soil layer, and and I mentioned that we cross rip, and the the spacing is eight feet. That's how that's how far you space those ripper shank plows. And so, mm. if the water is running downhill, it can only go from from one furrow eight feet, and it drops into the next furrow. And we plant those trees in those rips or in those furrows because that's where you've shattered. And like Hal was asking me on our last phone call, he said, Well, how do you, how do you prepare this compacted soil? This is how you do it. You fracture that, that compacted soil or that hard pan and that, and you fracture it two dimensional and that, that allows the roots a space to grow and it, and it works. And so, you don't have to put up a silt fence. You don't have to do, um, you know, after they've done gotten rid of the settling pond, you don't need it anymore because the water's not going anywhere. And as that soil layer builds up with leaves and, and twigs and other, you know, little bitty pieces of, of the tree, well then, you know, as that builds up and the, and the bugs are working underneath it, you've got a soil layer. And as that water perks through, it clean, you know, it's a filter, so it's cleaning.
0: And so you need some tough species to, to plant in there that are going to survive without having irrigation or... That's correct. So are you planting a small seedlings or are you planting seedlings and seed? Are you uh, planting larger specimens or are you planting all of it?
2: So what we do, Eve, is we plant um, bare-root, native seedling or native species and so these are grown in nurseries and one of your things I think one of your questions was where where do you get your seedling source or where's the source of your seedling and the answer to that is our first choice is we always try to purchase or or the tree planting whoever's doing the tree planting we we recommend that they use our state partners first because our state forestry commissions or divisions of forestry higher agencies they have nurseries and that's who we want to direct it to first if they can't supply that order then it goes to the private nurseries whose cost are competitive and all that kind of stuff but in answer to your question we use bare root seedlings and they're usually one year old so they're about the diameter of a pencil eva and they're anywhere between oh, 16, 18 inches tall. Now, we have used the seed before, like acorns and hickory and um, black walnut and American chestnut. But the problem with that is, as soon as you plant that seed in the ground, that nut in the ground, squirrels, rabbits, and deer, they just walk right down the thing and they eat them. So, you know, with the, the little, the little, Nut doesn't even have a chance much to sprout, a little green sprout, and, and somebody, a critter is already digging it up and it, you know, that becomes lunch. So that's why we've gone to using the seedlings, much better survivability. We plant right at 700 seedlings per acre. That's on that eight foot by eight foot spacing. And we do that, even though a lot of people go, well, that's a lot of trees it is a lot of trees but when you factor in deer brows and molds and bowls eating that tender root and rabbits yeah. that girdle it right at the ground level you know you got all these these mm. and then you got drought and wind and you know occasionally if somebody thumps a cigarette you're going to have a fire so you factor in worst case scenario so if you plant 700 trees per acre and Mom Nature and the critters take 200. You still got 500 trees per acre, which is a good number. So you got a good percentage of survivability.
0: That have you ever heard of the Miwaukee method of forestry in, in small little plots? The Miwaukee method, where they'll uh, ju- what is it called? Miwaukee uh, t- It's called tiny that. forest, where they where they you know really concentrate a lot of seedlings or s- diverse seedlings in a small area. And the idea is for them to compete with one another until they start to grow up. And, and these are done in small areas. And the way you're describing your process sounds very much like that, where they're using bare root seedlings or a small potted plants. And the survivability is so much better when you have smaller plants because they adapt much quicker. That's correct. And, you know, we know as, as arborists that, you know, for every inch caliper, it takes a year for that particular tree to establish itself. So the smaller the caliper, the better uh, survivability rate, you know, from a, from a standpoint of getting situated. And I think that's really fascinating that you're, you're talking about the 16 to 18-inch year seedling. Fabulous, mm-hmm a way to plant and establish a, a forest very quickly.
2: It is, and and we plant in the spring of the year, typically from about mid-February to mid to late April, depending on the weather in that particular county or part of the state, that type thing. And your reason why you wait to about mid-February is in Appalachia, you have to wait for the snow to melt and the ground to thaw if you try to plant that tree and hand plant with a dibble bar and you're trying to go through frozen ground and you shove that that seedling in there, then you're going to damage the roots and possibly that plant's going to die. But when you're planting them in that cold early spring, those seedlings are dormant. And once they're in the ground, just like you were saying, And then springtime arrives and they start to bud out. Then they wake up and they're in their new home.
0: Less of a shock because they have to survive. They have to survive there because that's the only soil that they have.
2: That's correct. And they can do it. Yeah. You know, people think, well, what? There is no topsoil on a mine site. Well, there is. It's not much. You know, it's, it's topsoil and spoil and a lot of rock and fractured rock and all that kind of stuff. But to that tree, when it wakes up in the spring, you know, it's at its home. So it's going to start growing. And of course, as you were saying, over the years, it starts dropping things on the soil and, and you know, things just get better. It becomes a native forest.
1: Something, Something tells me also, Cliff, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that mine spoils in terms of aggregate size combined with the decomposing leaf material at the top. That's a pretty good medium when it's time to finally plant right uh, that you've got uh, aggregate to kind of stabilize and a little bit of the uh, decomposing humus to be worked into the soil by the big uh, plow
2: you're you're correct and the other thing is <clears throat> those those chunks rocks of sandstone especially sandstone but the limestone as well as you know part of them are are exposed, and they start to weather naturally. And, of course, when sandstone, when it weathers, it, it's sand, you know, it's soil. Right. That's the brown sandstone. Gray sandstone's a little harder. Limestone, as we know, is a, much harder. But they're all starting to weather, each one, you know, as, as it rains with that little bit of acid in that rain, and it, as things drop on, on the ground from the trees from above – that produces a a mild acid as well. So it's weathering those exposed rocks and and chunks of stone every day.
0: So it's almost like you're speeding up the process that we would have had years ago when when we had lots of exposed rock really. Looking at these old strip mines, we're actually looking at bits and pieces of our own own geology and you're processing this, this whole woodland Using what we know today as the best method or the best practice?
2: That's correct. What we're using is a thing called Forestry Reclamation Approach or FRA. That was a research project years ago at Virginia Polytechnical Institute or Virginia Tech, but there were several professors there and grad students that with OSM approached them and said, We got to do something better than just sowing grass seed on these things because when we have big gully washer rains and heavy snows and it melts it it just washes away and we have gullies and so these forestry professors and grad students from the school of forestry they got together and they they did years of research and they said okay here's a five-step method to plant native trees here's how you do it and at first it was you know just rip one direction on the contour horizontally And that's what Auburn was doing at the same time, or earlier, I guess. That was before computers. So they really weren't communicating with each other, except, you know, at their little annual meetings and such. But Virginia Tech came out with this approach. And over the years, other universities like Virginia, West Virginia University, University of Kentucky, Ohio State, you know, all all the players, they've all gotten together. And each one of them is kind of, okay, Here are some good trees to plant. You know, if you're in East Kentucky, here's a list of of native trees to use. If you're in Western Kentucky, here's another list to use. That type of thing. It's regional kind of. But that research is helping us foresters in the field understand it and carry it out because we're the actual guys getting it done on the ground.
0: Right. So everybody has to know the process inside and out for it to be successful that's true do you that's use true. a polymer for wetting as a wetting agent for your root systems cuz i know here in philadelphia we do all bare root and we use a polymer we dip it into a polymer so that the roots stay moist until they get planted
2: that's correct and and i'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people don't know that but all of the nurseries they use that and it's a gel right so or some powdery. and when they when they put the water in it 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 turns into like little beads of jello. And so they dip those roots after they've been taken out of the ground, they come through, they've been sorted and counted, they dip those roots and then they put them in there, whether it's a wax box or a bag or whatever, however they're doing it, and then they seal them up and put them in the refrigerated cooler room to keep them cold until whoever ordered those trees comes by to pick them up. But you're right. Now, on the mine, when we get ready to plant, especially on the volunteer planting events, we have bags of peat moss. And so when we stuff the buckets with different species of trees between 50 and sometimes 100, mostly between 50 and 80 for the volunteer events, then we put that damp peat moss on them and then we store them. Try to store them like inside of a shop or a maintenance building or something to keep them from freezing, keep them out of the weather, protect them from, and especially from drying out. But you're right, Eva. We use a, that gel to keep the roots moist until it's time to stick them in the ground.
0: And all this, all of this stuff is, fair, when I say fairly new, within the last twenty years. If you know, we've had so many improvements uh, with. Products that have helped to be able to reforest that, you know, we can do it much faster. We've got the right machinery that's been developed. We have the right forestry people planting. We have quick ways of germinating. Um, Mm -hmm. All of that leads to a better forest.
2: It does. And one thing that that Hal brought up uh, last month was the genetics have improved. Uh, quite a bit on our seedlings. So the, those seedling nurseries are always striving to get the best trees. You know, years ago, you heard the term super tree, which is the most awesome tree that you could find in, in oaks and in the, in the woods native. And then you would collect those acorns or those pine seeds or maple seeds or whatever, whatever seed crop that was. And then you planted those in the nursery. So now they've done Genetic experiments and cloning and all that. That's a lot of research. But at the end of the day, when you go pick up those trees at the nursery, you know that you're getting the best genetics possible today. Now, two years from now, five years from now, they may have generation three or four or something like that. But you know when you go get yours today, those are gonna be the best trees possible.
0: That's really fascinating. And, you know, you wonder how many people know about this. You know, <laughs> again, knowing this is, is is gold, really.
2: Well, unfortunately, I mean, foresters do good work. You know, that's yes. what we're taught in school. And then we learn, you learn the real world when you get out and you're practicing forestry in the field. But this isn't sexy stuff, so Foresters don't do a real good job of explaining what we do. We just do it. So then when you talk to somebody like yourself or Hal and y'all start asking questions and shining the light on things, then people go, wow, that's really going on? I had no idea. Well, and
0: I and I think too one of the one of the reasons why we have this podcast, not only to encourage people to plant, but also to globally share information that might not be known or maybe make things better for people or easier for people, that planting can be very successful. It's not that big bald and burlap tree all the time. So, you know, no, it's the little babies. No, it's, it's the little babies that make a difference.
2: That's right. It's the small ones. And, and you know, when the when the folks at Virginia Tech were doing the research, they did the mechanical planning as well. So they would do a side-by-side, hand plant, mechanical plant. And the, the survivability just wasn't there, especially on a mine site. Because if you've, I've done this, you rode on that tractor seat behind a tractor, and you're right there, and that wheel comes up, and you stick that tree in that wheel, and mm. it sticks it in the ground, and you got two disc blades behind you that cover it up, and you're bouncing over over rocks and hills, and you mm. know there's no way you could do a quality planting job riding on a because I mean when you get off there you're damn near paralyzed, you yeah. can barely walk, so and that's on a that's on a, what used to be an ag field, so trying to do it on a what they did in research trying to do that on a mine site, they probably did that in one day and they said, you know what, this isn't working, we're not doing this anymore. And, but you have to try it to, to see
0: what happens. See what happens. And if, if that's what, that's why our, our schools and universities are so important for our infrastructure because they're exactly. the ones doing the experimentation, they're the ones that are carrying it out, and they can see side by side the comparisons of what works and what doesn't. I just finished reading uh, Finding the Mother Tree and she was a, a fabulous Susan uh, Simard, I think it is, she was talking about her plots that she had for forestry because she was uh, working with uh, forestry in Washington State and they how they would clear cut everything and just strip everything off the ground and realizing that that wasn't the best way to do it, to have to leave something there so that you don't have any problems with runoff. And the way you're explaining how you're doing your field uh, makes it sound very desirable for planting because it is very much like farm planting, only you're, you were planting trees rather than carrots or lettuce or something like that.
2: That's right. What you're talking about, that mechanical site prep is key to mine land restoration. Uh, I call it the long pole and the tent, borrowing an army term, of course, but. Without that dozer, which is, it's, a, it's expensive because you're using the equivalent of a D6 or a D7 dozer. That's a size dozer, which typically is around 200 horsepower uh, with a D6. That's a Caterpillar brand, but everybody's got their own version of that. Or a D7, which is about a 225, 230-horse tractor, tracked of course and those are the dozers that have got the horsepower to go uphill downhill with those ripper shanks those plows behind them and believe me they're pulling up boulders you know you either you either hook that boulder and pull it up and then it looks like a big tombstone or that 36 inch ripper shank when it hits that rock it splits it and of course if you hit it that rock with that plow and your tractor stops then you lift that up, go over it, put your plow back down and continue on. But those are the size dozers and those don't come cheap. So with the operator and, and, the, and the fuel and all of the things that make that dozer go to work that day, you know, you're know you looking at around $400 to $550 an hour. So you got to have somebody that's qualified that knows what they're doing so that you can get the acreage per hour that you, that you need to do. How many ripper
1: shanks are on the back of a dozer? Or is it just a single?
2: We, it, you can use a single. How? But with those two size dozers that I'm talking about, typically you put a shank, you use two shanks, and you and you put them right behind the tracks on the dozer, which just happen to be about eight feet apart. Okay. So that's where our eight feet by eight feet spacing comes from. And when you do it, a hillside on a mine site, you go vertically or up and down that hill first. And then you go horizontally or along the contour second, because that would be your last furrow opening in the on the soil. And that's how the water is trapped between the the furrow uphill and it can only it can only run eight feet before it drops into that next slip or furrow. Right. So there's right. no there's no soil erosion, but and then you plant the trees in those furrows. So now they're getting every drop of water, they're getting their drink from that. And it holds yeah. that it holds that water a little longer than let than letting it run down the next eight feet.
1: The typically what is the average size of a uh, mountaintop reclamation site?
2: The acreage of them? Yeah. That always varies because one big mountaintop, Hal, can be two landowners or it could be six landowners. Mm -hmm. And, of course, not everybody wants their property planted back in trees. Some of them are just going to let mom nature grow back whatever. Maybe they've got a deal that they're going to make a grape vineyard out of. Um, There's all kind of ideas. but And and those have all been tried. And I'm not going to say yay or nay on any of them. Because I'm a forester, but I believe that mine sites, well, it just stands for reason. Those mountaintops were native trees before they were cleared, and the overburden was cleared to go after that seam of coal. So you put all that overburden, subsoil, topsoil, rock, all of it back on there, and then you plant trees on it to put it back the way it was 400 years ago. Right. In Appalachia... It was native hardwoods, majority of it. So it just stands to reason for me, you put it back in, in native hardwoods, wildlife habitat, and you try to put it back as native as possible.
0: When you were talking about the equipment and being expensive and and the time it takes, but when you think about developing a forest and you're you're actually speeding up the process, you're actually gaining money by doing it, the way you're doing it. it You know, the equipment exactly. may be expensive. Most people don't think of it this way, but I'm thinking if you can cut two or three years off the process, you're way ahead of the game. You're way ahead of the game for, you know, a, a healthy forest, uh, woodland walk so that people can actually do a hike through the woods. I mean, there's all of that to think about too. And the, the, the machinery actually becomes a lot less expensive when you look at it from the long run.
2: You're exactly right, Eva. What we're trying to do is jumpstart or give mom nature a jumpstart of about 40 to 50 years. Oh, my. That's a very minimum estimate because if you waited, if you if the coal companies reclaimed or didn't reclaim and you waited for mom nature to put back a native forest, that's about 100 years. Yep. So if we can jumpstart that by at least 50, cutting it in half, then you're exactly right. The long range cost of this whole process becomes pennies per acre. When you divide acres by cost, by 50 years, and a couple other environmental factors in there. Then, and then of course, once you start and the animals start coming back, especially those fur bearing and those feather animals, now they're carrying seed in their fur, and when they when they poop out there in the woods. So yeah. you when you bring critters back to your your little mini forest and then you've got mice, so you've got birds, you've got deer, you've got coons, you've got all that, and they're bringing other seeds in from wherever they fed last. They're bringing them in and depositing them on your little forest. So now you're getting a a mix that you don't even know about until it grows up.
0: You're really playing our music. We like to hear oh, this okay. kind of stuff. Well, we love hearing this kind of stuff because this is this is what makes us want to do this podcast, you know.
1: I have a feeling Cliff sleeps well at night. <laughs> I,
2: I tell you what, I've been I've been in forestry for over 40 years. You know, I started out planting trees as a professional forester when I was a timber buyer for the timber companies. Part of my thing was, you know, if if we clear cut because of pine beetles or a tornado or ice storm or whatever mom nature threw at them, well, then a lot of times people go, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? But those folks were thinking, not for them, but for their children and grandchildren, of course, with the pines, to get a quality pine tree, you, you have to plant those good genetics for the hardwoods. Hardwood's going to sprout from seeds and from stump sprout. But if, if you want something other than maple and sweet gum, then you're going to have to buy the seedling. So I would advise my landowners, those clients that we bought the timber from. And then if they had a, let's say they had an ag field that adjoined that, whether it was cotton, corn, or a hay field, or they said, you know what, I'm about to get out of the corn business and the cattle business, and I'm going to put this whole thing back and the trees, children, and grandchildren. And I go, you know what? You're singing my song. I can help you. So I started doing landowner assistance when I was with the timber company, and that's before that caught on. But that's how you get people thinking. And thank goodness these were folks who, you know, they were in the Cattlemen's Association. They were good conservationists, that type thing. But they knew trees because they'd grown up with trees and they wanted their children and grandchildren to have trees, whether it was for walking in the woods, going hunting, going bird watching, or doing a timber thinning in about 15 or 20 years and putting some money towards somebody's college
0: education. What you're talking about, the relevance of all of this is globally usable. In other words, all the processes that you're talking about today can be used anywhere in the world. And I think that that goes out to all our global listeners. We, we really feel that having someone like yourself come on and explain these processes is invaluable to somebody who has to reclaim an area.
2: Yeah, it is responsible. But it's also uh, good stewardship. Yes. Eva, yes. And, and, and you're practicing good, sound forest management. And when you practice forest management and you practice forest health, forest health and, and forest management go hand in hand. And once you take care of your forest and it's healthy, and if a tree is diseased and you go, you know what, we got a problem. we got pine beetles, or we've got that emerald ash borer, and all our ash trees are dying, or we've got oak wilt, or whatever the case might be, then you take care of that problem. Just like in a, a herd of cows or a, or a flock of chickens, You got to take the sick ones out. You got to protect the herd or the flock. And you got to protect the forest. But once you do all that and you stay on it, because that's a full-time job. But once you do that, you're you're good. And just like you're saying, your air is good, your water is good, your soil is healthy, and your trees are healthy. And then you've got wildlife management coming out your ears.
1: So many of the innovations you're doing speak to the need. For large-scale plantings and what I've heard so far is you know we touched on the innovations of bare-root plantings Mm -hmm. and you hope that bare-root innovation will continue because it it is the primary input for getting trees in I'm starting to think about some of the communities in uh, Kentucky the two towns right around Christmas that got leveled I mean Small towns and municipalities are really hurting with with loss of canopy cover, and you, and you almost wonder if some of the innovations. I mean, probably not that dozer, but still getting trees planted into settled communities on a larger scale. Perhaps there's some overlap there.
2: There is, and that that happened in West Kentucky, uh, those two towns, and Kentucky Division of Forestry was pretty much right on the scene that the next morning, and and the way they. They did that, Kentucky EMA, long story short, the Kentucky Division of Forestry brought manpower and equipment, and they brought their dozers. First of all was to clear all the roads so the first responders could get in and help people and and find people um, because it was raining and cold and all that. But now they have flown over that with drones. They've walked over it. They've mapped it with GIS. And so those forested acreage, like you and Eva were just talking about, those forested acres, of course, they go back with their aerial photos and Google Maps, and they went through through the Division of Forestry, through NRCS, USDA, all of that, Corps of Engineers, and they've got the, the maps, and they know exactly where those forests were. So they go in, and they salvage what they can, clear it all out, and then they're going to
0: replant. Yeah, we just had a tornado here in our region and we had someone talking about it and I was out actually helping replant in people's backyards because there were they were they yeah. lost forest and then a housing development and they lost their trees and then, you know, the whole process is really fascinating and it needs to be done quickly so that they continue their mourning but also uh, the loss of natural resources downstream.
2: I'm going to continue to give Kentucky Division of Forestry a a glowing check. They have a a section called Urban Forestry, and that's what they do is they advise cities across the Commonwealth of Kentucky about, you know, if if their older trees are dying or they were storm damaged, what can we plant back? And which you have to be respectful of overhead power lines and all that kind of stuff. So they're coming back and they're advising those towns because they don't want to live in a, in a desert. You know, they, they had trees before they want trees. So now they're, they're going to have to either bring in some pretty good sized trees on the backs of big trucks and put them in or trees like you were earlier saying, and buckets are wrapped in burlap that are fast growing trees for the city Because people want to see, they want their trees around their houses. Yeah.
1: So it sounds like the couple states, the states that you work with regularly are able to keep up with supply in terms of seedlings for the most part. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Okay, that's very encouraging, yeah.
2: Either with our state partners or with our private nursery partners.
1: Private. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, spring planting season ends. Uh, whether it's a state agency or a um, privately held company, they can spend the rest of the year with their collection, planting, germination, and tending. So that when Cliff calls late fall or whatever gets that order, and you're probably putting your orders in now, you're not going to be short-handed on a day where you need a couple thousand trees.
2: That's correct. Usually you put in your tree order during the July and August time frame. Now that's okay. that's to book you, the number of trees and the species that you need on this project, this project, this project. But now mm-hmm. at the nursery all the trees that they had contracted, they were lifted and sold and they're gone. So the trees that weren't sold, if they have a surplus, then those trees will be sold next year as either, you know, now there'll be a year older. So it'll either be a two-year-old seedling or a three-year-old seedling, which like we just talked about, those urban foresters, they want an older tree because it's got a bigger root system. But at the nursery, they never have a day off because Mm. they, Mm. now that, all of their trees that they sold, now they're preparing those beds. And they're also the, the folks that contract out to go and collect seed. Now they're being told how many pounds of seed or how many thousands of acorns and hickory nuts and black walnut that they need to go and collect. And so they're given a list of species from wild plum to white oak to Black locusts, uh, your willow trees, your maple, all of that. And so, you know, you're looking at not only timber species, but wildlife species. So the, you know, the process is there's a lot of gears turning and folks don't see that behind the curtain, but it's it's going. So yeah, yeah. your your seed collectors, some trees drop in the spring, some trees drop in the fall. So they've got their areas picked out where they go and get these super trees and the nursery they see they keep those acorns and those and those nuts and seed from the year past because they got to plant those now because they've got to germinate and be ready to go
1: do you ever hear anyone fretting about uh, abundance of seed are the collectors always able to get their hands on what they need
2: from what i know yes and we're not okay. we're talking about an army of folks Know, statewide, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're going yeah. everywhere. You know, they're in national forests and state forests, state parks, national parks. They get permits to do this. Private land, they go on timber company lands. You know, I I know folks right there in Lexington. You know where they get a lot of their seed? Right there at the library, in front of the courthouse. And you know where one of the one of the most frequent
0: places that they go and get seed from? In a cemetery. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, I work with a couple of cemeteries and they have really big old trees and they have really they good seed sets.
2: They do. And it's a small source of income for them because they get paid by the pound, just like the just, you know, they get it, they get a check for pounds for, for seed by the collectors. So it's a
0: it's quite an industry. Wow, you've given us a lot to think about.
1: Very much so, Cliff. It's been great. We have made a habit on our podcast of asking our guests, and you, since you started at this as a little guy, what is your favorite tree? Do you have a tree that you resonate with or have a special handshake with? I do.
2: In fact, I have a, I'm, I'm going to say, I've got a handful of my favorites. Growing up in South Louisiana, uh, the state tree of Louisiana is the bald cypress. Love it. And the ball cypress grows it's prolific pretty much yeah. all the way up until it hits the extreme cold weather, you know. But, uh, and another one is um, is a southern yellow pine. Um, I, I grew up with pine trees. In fact, that's the state tree of Alabama. Uh, well, it's a longleaf pine now, but it's in the southern yellow pine family. And a longleaf pine, I grew up with those in south Louisiana because of swamps, that type of thing. And so my next favorite tree is the uh, white oak, and the reason for that is <clears throat> the white oak is is a wildlife tree, it's a timber tree, it's a furniture tree, and also white oak is what staves are made of for the bourbon barrel.
0: Oh, so you must like bourbon.
2: <laughs> I do like bourbon, and <laughs> but the white oak initiative is a big program now throughout Appalachia because that's where the white oak grows the best and it's in decline because it's in such high demand for all of those things all those reasons i just mentioned and your older white oak is the one that people want and if they're cutting them at a rate no they won't ever get old right so we're trying to plant we're trying to plant more white oak per acre on these mine land re- reforestation restoration projects because that's the white oak's native home and we're trying to get the populations up along with American chestnut that's another program that we push the black walnut but we're trying to get more white oak because that's a multi-use tree in high demand you know a, a white oak barrel a charred barrel that thing sells for more use than it did when it was when it was just a, a barrel know. yeah. yeah. So they don't throw them away. Yeah. So those are three of my favorite trees right there.
1: Good call. Good call. Well, we really appreciate your time. And every time we have a guest like you, I think, man, I can't wait to have this guy back on. So (laughs) you might be hearing from us again.
2: I appreciate uh, all your questions. And I'm going to extend an invitation to you for next spring. Please do. If I have to come by and pick the two of you up in my truck, I'm bringing you to a tree plant event so you can see one.
0: We would love that. I
1: would love that. Yep. Are we talking somewhere in Kentucky or what, what do you have in mind for
2: uh, us? Uh, you know what? If you can get to eastern Ohio, if you can get to east Kentucky, if you can get to western PA, Eva. Yeah. We, we, there's tree plantings all over Appalachia, and most of them occur during Arbor, Arbor Week. Yes, right. Or during Earth Week. Right. And the the heat, the biggest event in Appalachia by far, and I'll give a little shout out for this one is Flight 93 oh, uh, sure. Nash, National Park near Shanksville, oh, yeah. Pennsylvania, where the plane crashed on nine eleven, and yeah. they had that. <clears throat> During Earth Week, that's when they that's when they typically try to have it. And Earth Day is always April 22nd. That fell on a Friday this year, so that was perfect. So they had it Friday and Saturday. And can you believe they have 500 volunteers per day? And they come from around the country and, and from around the world to come plant trees on a cold, wet, muddy day on a hillside and it's very, it's just humbling because I've been a team yeah. lead there for several years and people show up to plant trees in honor of their, of loved ones that have passed or of the, of the people who died that day on the plane. It's amazing. Right. It really is. Yeah. yeah. I will keep you up to date so that we're going to meet on a mine site and we're going to plant trees in the mud.
0: Sounds great. It sounds fabulous. And, and if you come to Philly, let us know. I will we'll give that. you a tree tour.
2: All right. I look forward to it. Cliff, thanks again.
0: You're quite welcome. Really great. All
2: have a great day. You too. Do the same, sir. Thank you. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
0: The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromeda Recordings in Hollywood, California.